your copy of God's Word and turn to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Let me remind you, as I've been doing the last several weeks, um, you you don't want to close it. This is a very short verse. Uh, You don't want to finish verse 14 and close it and put it away uh, because you're going to need it. Uh, You're going to need it again um, several times. So keep uh, your copy of God's Word handy. We're, we're, We're here to hear from Him not so much from me, uh, and so um, we will uh, we'll refer to several other passages um, this morning. Exodus chapter twenty. Uh, I have been uh, reading from verse one to verse fourteen. I mean, through starting at verse one uh, each and every Sunday. So uh, I'm going to continue that. And if you're able, uh, would you please stand as we read God's word together? Exodus twenty. Uh, Beginning in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth Uh, On the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we come asking for your spirit. Uh, you inspired these words. Uh, you have preserved these words. And so we pray that you would now be at work in them in our own hearts and minds. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, hearts to understand and embrace. To the honor and glory of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. There's a story, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's probably just that it's just a story but it makes for a good story i suppose so uh you get it this morning but there's the story told of a fairly wealthy influential um man uh, that kind of lived up in the um the hills of the appalachian mountains and um because of his wealth because of his influence because of who he was and because of where he lived, back up this long, windy, narrow road, uh, he got to help select school bus drivers. Uh, because, you know, he lives up this road and it was a dangerous, kind of scary place. And so he kind of got involved in helping choose who would be driving the school bus. He asked one question. He would literally look at them and say, look, I just have one question. You see the road that you have to drive up to get up here. How close to the edge can you get and not be in danger? 
Well, the first, you know, that, so that's his, his question. His question is, how close to the edge can you get without putting everyone else around you in danger? That's human nature, isn't it? I, that's how we really approach the seventh commandment is to ask, where's the line? How close can I get without technically going over and without technically breaking the commandment, but still getting to do everything that I want to do? It's human nature to kind of go, I want to know technically what is adultery and technically what does this mean? So technically I can keep the commandment and... And still, you know, push the boundaries, the lines as far out as possible. Get away with as much as possible. And of course, a certain president hasn't helped us very much uh, back in the whenever that was. And so first, we've got to ask, what does it mean to commit adultery? What is adultery in this seventh commandment? Well, you know the obvious, you know the standard, you know the straightforward definition of adultery. Any sexual intimacy by a married person with someone who isn't his or her spouse. And at some level, just like with don't murder, sweet. That, if that's all that I'm held to, if that's all that is meant by this commandment, I mean, I can prove I love every single one of you. I haven't actually killed you, right? I mean, if that's the, if that's the bar for clearing the sixth commandment, the bar for clearing the seventh commandment is also pretty simple, pretty low. But we know that's not the case. We know what Scripture does with this commandment and, and all the others for that matter. So at a bare minimum, the standard straightforward adultery definition applies. But then as you read through the rest of the Bible, you find the Bible condemning all sorts of sexual activity outside the confines of marriage. It's normal particularly with several of these Ten Commandments. Jesus makes this clear in the Gospels. God uses them sort of like chapter titles. Uh, it's, the, it's the chapter title, Don't Commit Adultery. But then there's this long chapter sort of unpacking what that means. It's a, a heading. Um, it has a fancy term, by the way. The fancy term for, for people that care about this stuff is synecdoche. And I literally had to work all week. I just this past week learned how to pronounce that word and, and worked to make sure I didn't say schenectady. It's not the city in New York. It's synecdoche. Basically, it means that when you take a part and apply it to the whole, check out those wheels. What you really mean is look at that car. Well, the, the Bible does this. And so when it uses thou shalt not commit adultery, it actually means all sorts of sexual sin, any form of sexual sin. And we know this. We know this instinctively. We know this because we've read the Bible. We know this because our conscience tells us that we're supposed to know this. But I'm going to show you anyway. We're going to take a quick trip through the Bible, not the whole Bible, not every part of the Bible, but a few places in Scripture where we see this clearly laid out for us. Turn to Leviticus chapter 20. 
Uh, Leviticus 20, and then you really get the same thing in Deuteronomy 22, so we won't look there, but just know that you could get the, almost the exact same thing reinforced there in Deuteronomy 22. But in Leviticus 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And there's standard sort of definition number one. A married person having sexual relations with someone who isn't their spouse. But if you were to keep reading the rest of the passage, you get all sorts of things condemned there. That your mother's, your, your father's wife, your son's wife, another man, all sorts of things in this list. And so Scripture clearly forbids um, all forms of sexual intimacy outside of the confines of the marriage relationship. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, wait, hold on. That's the Old Testament. And, and I get that the Old Testament sort of matters like that. And, and it's all about rules and laws and stuff anyway. And that's not, you know, grace is in the New Testament. So we really want to be New Testament Christians. The reality is we're whole Bible Christians. We're not New Testament Christians. We're whole Bible. The New Testament Christians were Old Testament Christians. So if it works for them, it should work for us as well. But if you need a New Testament passage, turn to Romans chapter 1. And let me remind you, uh, because of uh, the times we live in, um, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22, both forbid homosexuality. And so part of the argument has become, well, that's the Old Testament and that doesn't come up in the New Testament. But in Romans 1, in verse 18, we get the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so Paul's writing to describe those people who know the truth, but because of our sinfulness, we suppress it. We don't want any part of it. And what does that look like? How does that play out in the life of the unbeliever? It shows us the, the natural man, the non-Christian who's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Even though God, through general revelation, God is clearly seen in creation. And yet it goes on to describe them as worshiping creation rather than the creator. But look at verse 26. Notice what it says there. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Scripture condemns homosexuality. But it always does so within the context of every other sort of aberrant sexuality. At some level, you might think, well, maybe we as a church, maybe the, the church in the world today should care as much about every form of, of sexual immorality as we do about homosexuality. 
you'll find sexual immorality, which usually in the King James, the New King James, you'll get um, fornication. Uh, that's the word you'll read there. And so throughout Scripture, we get this pattern of condemning all forms of, of adultery, of fornication, of sexual immorality outside of marriage. But we also know that it's not merely external. We, we, we just read Matthew 5 for our New Testament reading. What Jesus does with, with all the commandments is to, to sort of push them from our hands and feet to our hearts. He reminds us all over again um, that, that sin is rooted in our hearts and doesn't start in our hands and feet. And just as anger lashing out at, in anger at someone is murdering them, so too looking lustfully at them is committing adultery with them. Murder begins in the heart, so does adultery. Lust ends up being adultery, as we read in Matthew chapter 5. The desire for the act itself is itself sin. But I want to show you something from Matthew chapter 15. Turn to Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, we get the explanation um, that, that what goes into your body doesn't defile you. What you eat doesn't make you unclean. Eating with hands that you haven't washed doesn't make you unclean. Okay, it might make you sick, but in spiritual terms, it doesn't make you unclean. It's what comes out of the body that makes us unclean. Because what goes into your body is going to eventually come out another way. But what comes out of your body comes from your heart. And so it's notice the way he says it in verse uh, 17, Matthew 15, verse 17. Do you not see that, that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. But pay attention to the list that he's about to give. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder. See, here's the thing. I can't physically kill somebody with my mouth. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty strong. And um, I've been, you know, taking some jujitsu and taekwondo, and I can beat you up all kinds of different ways. I can, you know, beat you into submission with my pinky. But with my mouth, I can't. That's supposed to be funny. Like that was supposed to be. Um, it's interesting to me that the things in the list, are, none of them are verbal. Notice he said it's what comes out of the mouth that makes you unclean. And so here's the list. Murder. Adultery. Sexual immorality. The, the adultery and fornication, both in the list at the same time. Theft. False. Finally, a, a, a sin of the mouth. In other words, it's interesting to me that the acts he refers to are outside of you, but they're not verbal. And so all of these, because they grow out of our hearts, because they come from within. But I hope the list sounds familiar. Does it, did you notice the list? That's the second table of the law. That's the second half of the Ten Commandments. 
those those acts forbidden in the Ten Commandments actually grow from our heart. In other words, long before our hands act, we're guilty of sin. Long before we murder, long before we commit adultery, long before we steal anything, we have already committed the act in our hearts. And you talk about a place where this commandment meets our culture. It's in the private, hidden, inward places of our hearts where it really meets the culture around us. You know, it's interesting, um, scary, interesting in a scary sort of way. Um, You know, the total revenue of every Major League Baseball team uh, is somewhere around three and a half billion dollars. Not each baseball team, every all combined. So Major League Baseball rolls in a whopping three and a half billion dollars a year. The NBA, that number grows to eight or nine billion dollars a year. The NFL, 15 billion dollars. Dollar, you have to do it like that, right? Billion to make sure you're not saying million. You got to hear it correctly. The porn industry makes more than Major League Baseball and the NBA combined, and almost as much as the NFL. They're raking in 12 to 13 billion dollars a year. What we think of as secret and hidden, and private, and just me and my computer, or just me and my whatever, is a a huge, growing business preying on our sinful condition. It's a deadly global pandemic we really need to do something about. But if you think about it, it makes sense that that Jesus would say that when we lust, look with lustful intent after someone else, that we're committing adultery. Because, because not only are we desiring the act itself, but we're also turning that other person into an object. They're created in the image of God. And we're saying, nope. Instead, I'm going to turn you into a thing. A, a statue. Oh, and also, instead of caring about your good, I'm only going to care about mine. It's selfishness and it, and it destroys the image of God in, in other people. So the seventh commandment condemns, forbids all forms of, of aberrant sexuality outside of marriage. How does God deal with this sin? What's his reaction to it? Well, did, you, did you notice in Leviticus 20, verse 10? Uh, that both guilty parties are to be put to death. The punishment in the Old Testament for adultery was the death penalty. And you're thinking, well, hold on, that's just way too harsh. Like that, we can't possibly do that today. So we gotta, we gotta come up with something better than that. Turn with me to First Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six, which actually does 
Uh, a lot of what Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20 do, sort of walking through um, sexual sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is it a problem that we think of the death penalty as harsher than eternity in hell? Maybe our priorities are a little bit backwards. The reality is excommunication in the New Testament is sort of the, the, the church's application of the Old Testament death penalty. But that's another conversation for another day. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers... Right there in the list, adulterers and fornicators, we're told, won't inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, God hasn't actually changed his position on this issue. He hasn't changed his mind. It's, it's still the same. It still applies. Which points us to a need... for a right understanding of... Sexual intimacy. So what's the solution? What's the, what's the answer? If, if sexual immorality is just that serious, what's the solution? In, in Genesis 2, um, God created Adam and Eve and He put them in the garden and He told them, you know, here's, the, here's the fruit you can eat, here's what you can't eat. But their command was, be fruitful and multiply. Which means he gave the context and the means by which to carry out that command. So the command is, be fruitful and multiply. And then he gave them the context for carrying that out. Eve, Adam, you're now married. And uh, the means by which, sex, that is to be carried out. You know, back when I was, um, in fact, we're told there the two become one flesh. Uh, it's, it's, that's not simply an act. Uh, back when I was doing student ministry, back in the day, ages ago, we always had rules on youth retreats and things. Uh, one of the rules was no purpling. Um, and, you know, you can sort of figure it out, I guess. Um, in, in theory, um, if, if boys are blue and girls are pink, then, okay, I'm neither the, an artist nor the son of an artist, so you just have to humor me. I right, don't come up after and go, you know that's not true. I'm pretty sure it's not true, but that's okay. We're going with it anyway. It was still the rule, and the kids got it, and they understood it. If boys are blue and girls are pink, then girls don't belong in boys' rooms, and boys don't belong in, in girls' rooms, and you're not supposed to purple. You know, so it's a mix, pink and purple. I mean, pink and blue. In theory, if you mix pink and blue, in my head, it makes the color purple. It might not. I don't need to know. Every now and then, they would, they would catch me with my arm around Nancy, hold her hand. Ah, no purpling, Jeff. They always come back. And I would always respond with this. I can't help it. I'm permanently purple. See, that's what marriage does. 
being one flesh isn't only during the course of an act. It's who you are. It's who you become. It's your state of being as a married person. You become permanently purple. A wife is no longer pink. A husband is no longer blue. Both are permanently purple. And Hebrews 13 tells us we should hold marriage in honor and keep the marriage bed undefiled. And so the reality is to being one flesh in marriage is not simply an outward external act that happens sometimes. It's an inward reality that is reflected in that act. And so at some level, the seventh commandment says no inward spiritual reality, no act. No reality of, of one flesh in marriage, no act. In other words, the Bible has always taught from Genesis 2 to the end of the Bible God teaches us that sex is proper, but it's only proper within the boundaries established by marriage. An exclusive, perpetual covenant relationship. This is where I should remind you of, as we've been doing every week, of the first two verses of Exodus 20. This is where the first two verses of Exodus 20 matter. Because notice how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Which means the commandments are given to people who have already been redeemed. They're not the means by which you keep these commandments. God will save you. They were never intended to be the way Israel got saved. They are a reflection of how to honor and glorify a redeemer who's already saved them. But here's the other thing. Nobody else has that relationship with God. God has entered into an exclusive, perpetual, covenant relationship with His bride, the church. In other words, Israel can say, God has redeemed me, delivered me from Egypt and, and out of slavery, out of bondage. The Amorites can't say that. The Hittites can't say that. That. The Philistines can't say. No other group can say that. Which means the commandments are given, including the seventh, within a context of an exclusive, perpetual, covenant relationship. That's the image that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 to describe marriage. The relationship between Christ and His bride the church, when we violate the seventh commandment, we're telling people that the church, it's really okay for the church to follow Jesus. But sometimes, every now and then, Satan, that's okay. The world, that's fine. We understand. I know it's fun for a little while. Or we're suggesting not only that the church can and should, but that Christ can and should. If Jesus said, oh, I've got... I've got five brides. I've got brides all over the place. Not to mention a few lovers on the side just for kicks. We're suggesting that Jesus just might redeem the church, but not really love her all that much. 
marriage. Marriage is a, an exclusive, perpetual, covenant relationship. And it's within that relationship that sex belongs. And violating that covenant is violating, is, is painting a picture that God himself just might violate that covenant. In fact, we could actually look at Leviticus 18. Leviticus, 8, Leviticus 18 begins with um, a reminder to the Israelites. Before launching into um, a series on sexual sin, it actually reminds them, it tells them, uh, God says to them, look, um, you shall not be like the Egyptians. Those are the people you came from. You shall not be like the Canaanites. Those are the people you're getting ready to go be among. Instead, follow my statutes. And from there, he begins a, a section of commands on purity. In other words, our sexual purity should mark the church out as different from the world. You would expect um, premarital sex and divorce and all sorts of of sexual problems to for those statistics to be lower for porn use to be drastically different in the church from the rest of the world but they're not so how do we respond how should we react i didn't tell you the result of the bus driver quiz did i um so the the guy interviewing the the drivers the first driver walked in and said, I've, I've been driving buses for ages. I can get three, four feet from the edge. No problem. Second guy came in and said, look, I mean, I've, I've been driving buses a long time. You know, the door is on the cliff side, so I can actually see the edge. So as long as I can see the edge, I know. I mean, I can get close. So probably, you know, a couple of feet, two feet. And, and I can still see the edge of the cliff, and we're fine. Third guy walked in. The, the man said, okay, so how close can you get without being in danger? The guy goes, have you seen the cliff? That's dangerous. I don't intend to get close to that at all. I don't want to know how close I can get without falling over the edge. Who do you think got the job? Scripture tells us to flee sexual immorality. To actually run from it. To, to put up all sorts of barriers to make sure we aren't guilty of violating the seventh commandment we as professing believers united to christ should flee sexual immorality first corinthians 6 tells us romans tells us be killing sin john owen's paraphrase of romans be killing sin or sin will be killing you grab a knife find the old man the sinful flesh and drive a heart drive the knife deep into the heart of the flesh, the sinful self. What that means is if you're addicted to pornography, if you, if you struggle with pornography or you can't control yourself, it means accountability, it means internet filters, it means counseling, it means get help. Now, one of the problems we deal with is the church has a history of the church, the church, capitals. The church has a history of being the only organism in the world that will kill and eat its own kind. The church is supposed to be a hospital. 
Not a morgue. Not a, not a cannibal commune. Not a place where people with struggles and sin issues walk in and are immediately chewed up like piranhas and left for dead. We're supposed to be a hospital because we have the only message of hope in all the world. And so when people come in wrestling with anger, disobedient to their parents, struggling with sexual sin, struggling with kleptomania, struggling with their tongue. We're here for healing, not for destruction. Isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't Jesus take on flesh for the express purpose of healing the sick? Didn't he say that it's the ones who are sick who need a physician, who need the hospital? Well, this is the hospital for the spiritually struggling, for the hurting. Whether you're married or not, we need to affirm and defend that sexual intimacy belongs between one man, one woman in the context of Marriage. But we also need to look in faith to Jesus. He was pure because of our impurity. He was condemned because of our sin. He suffered for people who treat others like objects. And he has wholeheartedly devoted himself to his bride, the church. Jesus is a one-woman man. He only has I only have a, He only has eyes for his bride, the church. Run to him. Because that's where forgiveness is. That's where redemption is. That's where hope is. And that, by the way, is why we celebrate a thing called Christmas. Because he was born to take on flesh. To keep that which we cannot. One of the reasons we um, don't annually um, celebrate Advent and, and stop our sermon series and preach sort of Adventy sermons, um, one of the reasons is because um, I'm not that creative. I run out of things. Like, eventually, I'm saying the same thing every single year. Um, also because we're not really waiting on Jesus to be born. I mean, we're anticipating the day we celebrate his birth, but we're not waiting on Jesus to be born. That was 2,000 years ago. You know what we're waiting on? We're waiting for a wedding. We're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Christ and his only bride will be permanently, exclusively perpetually, without any sin and temptation whatsoever, united for all eternity. May that marriage fuel the way we treat our marriages. Whether we have one or not, it still works the same way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to love us as your people, to love the church, to set your affections on her, uh, to suffer and bleed and die, to redeem her, to win her heart. Um, and we pray that you would 
by your spirit, root out sinfulness, uh, wickedness in our own hearts, that we would be uh, by your grace as holy, uh, perpetually, exclusively committed to you as you are to us. And we pray that you would grow in us a longing for that day when you return to get your bride, to take her home, and to celebrate that great wedding. May we long for that day, and may we model that day in the way we treat each other in this life. For the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.